I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Hey guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Katie Irvine, and Katie is a science communicator. Welcome, Katie. Thank you. Hi. Thanks for coming and coming on the show. I met you two years ago and we were working together at the Riverland Field Days. That's right. And I just got back from the Daintree and you had told me that you'd studied tree kangaroos. So we had some great chats and knew I wanted to get you on the show at that point. What got you to become a, a science communicator? Can you talk about how you get into that? Yeah, sure. It was kind of accidental because I had studied ecology at university and then um, started a business where we did some science communication, but it was really just an incidental part, the boat tours that we ran. So we um, had whale watching and seal and dolphin watching and an educational element was really important to me to kind of bring in that conservation idea to talk to people who maybe just wanted to come for a joyride or, you know, often people kind of think about coming out on the boat and just having a fun time but if we could get them while they're out there to think about conservation to think about the needs of the animals um, maybe just some big picture stuff then it's really kind of gives an extra layer of experience to tourists uh, so we did that with the with the boat tours and um, we also had some citizen scientists who approached us and said we'd like to use your boat to, to do some research work. And um, so, yeah, just working with that group, the Big Tarpa Dolphin Watch group, over months and years and um, getting to see the joy that they got by volunteering to come out and collect this data and be part of something bigger uh, was really great. So from there I learned about citizen science and, um, yeah, my, my career in that area has kind of gone from there. So you're doing nature tourism, taking yes. people out and looking at like whales and seals and things like that, and you're interpreting these animals to them. Yes. And then you've got scientists coming on, and then you're learning things from them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly, because I wasn't trained in marine biology. Um, it was, re- yeah, really my interest was in more the big picture conservation side of it and education. I think people can't be passionate and, and protect things unless they actually know about them and, and often we don't know what we don't know, if you see what I mean. So if you can say to people, um, you know, we have these beautiful animals out here but it's really important that we um, look after the environment and, you know, don't throw our plastic in the um, rivers so that it ends up out here and they can actually be there and, and feel the, um, you know, the salt spray and hear the seagulls and, you know, really be immersed in the experience. Um, it, yeah. Yeah, it, you can see it, it touches people and, and there are people who have never been on a boat before and they have that experience with the animals and, and you can see that they potentially could go away and, and have a different opinion about conservation and, and the marine environment. So that's what made you want to become a science communicator? Yeah, I guess in hindsight, at the time I didn't realise that was what was going on. <laughs> I was running a business and... Um, yeah, I just kind of sharing um, what I loved, and then and then when we stepped away from the business, I really I realised that I missed that, and also being able to promote something. So I actually quite enjoyed social media, using that as a way to teach people about um, something that I was passionate about. And I thought if a lot of other people knew about this, they probably would be too. Um, so yeah, I really kind of got into the the psychology of marketing, but not marketing for a product, marketing for an idea for conservation, really. 
So brainwashing. <laughs> it's, it's funny, it's a wow. dirty word, isn't it, brainwashing? Um, I'm not saying you're brainwashing. And marketing can be seen as a dirty word, especially in, you know, um, in the environmental field sometimes. I think you can use it for, for the greater good. Exactly. All these words have a negative connotation but don't necessarily have to. It's yeah. Like, all, yeah, all that business side, it, it's, it's marketing. Yep. Need, it's needed. So, yep. yeah, it's good. It is. Yep. Yeah. Get the message across. And you've got, to make, you've got to make money, as we always talk about, for the environment. You can't yes. be wishy-washy. You've got to think about the bottom line to be able to do the greater good for conservation. Yep, I agree. How did you go from running and operating a nature-based tourism company with the boats to then starting tree kangaroos in the Daintree? Okay, well, it was actually the other way around. So I, <laughs> I started off... So I did my science degree at Adelaide Uni and then... Um, was offered a project for honours where I could work with the tree kangaroos at Adelaide Zoo um, and trial um, a method for determining the diet of wild tree kangaroos. That project involved uh, collecting scats from wild tree kangaroos and then also offering different foods to the tree roos at the zoo and looking at the cuticle, so that's the waxy covering on the leaf surface that survives the digestion process in the roo, looking at it in the scat. So, and you can actually tell what species of plant they have eaten by the pattern on the leaves. So the cell shape and the uh, stomates, which is the, the little pores on the leaf surface. So that was a year of my life that I spent sorting through tree roo poo. Um, but yeah, it turned out to be quite an accurate method. And um, we identified quite a few new species of food plant for the Lummox tree kangaroo in North Queensland using that method, um, just from some scouts we'd found in the rainforest. And then from there I went and worked on uh, green ring tail possums, James Cook University for three years, and using that same method but asking some kind of bigger picture questions about the diet of, of the green ring tail possum. They're, they're living in such a diverse rainforest in up on the Atherton Tablelands out of Cairns, um, but eating quite a specific diet. So they were preferring only three or four, five plants with 100 species on offer within the rainforest that they live in. So we were looking at the chemical makeup of the leaves and kind of trying to work out what's going on, why are they selecting those individual plants or species that they were. And it actually turned out to be individual plants within species that they were preferring and our findings were kind of based on, you know, looking forward to climate change. So this was quite a few years ago now, but in it's quite a dry rainforest out there. So thinking about if it's, there's going to be longer, hotter, drier spells and these animals are only getting their water really from their diet, how are they going to go as the trees become stressed um, to still be able to get as m- the nutrients and the, and the water that they need out of their diet when they are limited by uh, plant secondary metabolites so that the chemical compounds in the leaves that the plants use to protect themselves. Um, And yeah, it turned out they were selecting individual plants within species based on things like cyanide, so the levels of toxin in those individual leaves that was varying between between species. So <laughs> I find this stuff really interesting. I don't it's know about what you guys are saying. It is. <laughs> no, it is. It is, it's like an arms race between the animal and exactly. the plant. The plant's saying, you think you can eat this, but I'm yep. just going to make yeah, more cyanide. Yeah, they need to protect themselves. And they're going to, yeah, well, I'm just going to adapt yep. to be able yep. to digest this cyanide and yes. away we go. Yes. And it's so amazing, like the reasons you're doing it to, is for just in case in the future with, with the way that the, the, the planet's changing, like to make sure that those animals have some sort of safeguard as well. Or... We know way in advance 
if those animals potentially yeah. are going to be screwed and we yeah. can maybe do things about it. Yes. It's awesome. And un- just understand that. what's going on. Yeah. Is it really, when you say like an individual within the species, you're saying like there's, say, you know, a hundred of a particular species of plant, but they're only coming to these couple. Did I understand that right? Yeah. So there's in the rainforest, there's a hundred species and say that there are 50 individual plants of each species. So um, the green ringtail liked to eat the candlenut and um, an umbrella tree that um, the tree kangaroos were choosing. So why within that species, so of all the candlenut trees, why do they just take all of the leaves off of some individual trees? Mm. Um, that was the question we were looking at. And so we could collect the leaves and, and do a whole lot of chemical analysis. And it did turn out that in some species we could isolate which chemical compound was lower in the trees that they were eating, especially during the dry season. Um, yeah, so we could say, well, that's probably the limiting factor for for those animals. What's the ultimate thing? You end up like a koala or something? Yes. With a two-metre yes. cecum just sleeping all day long because yeah, you're just yeah. buggered because you just eat cyanide. Yes. People had previously done the, this work with koalas, but they were looking in a fairly low-diversity forest, eucalypt forest, and so, but they had isolated the compounds that was driving the diet choice in koalas. So we were kind of just replicating that, but in a really diverse rainforest setting and found similar results, different compounds, but the, yeah. The so those animals were able to pick the trees that have the least amount of the bad... The plant secondary metabolite, um, yes, so the toxin. The what, sorry? Plant secondary metabolite, PSM. Wow. PSM. <laughs> PSM. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. How do they know that? Well, yeah, I guess by taste and just how they, like, they feel sick, I suppose, if they eat too much of mm. and potentially by smell. Yeah. Did you get to spend much time observing, like, the tree kangaroos? Yes, what was that like? I've never seen one in a while. I went to the Daintree yeah. and I thought, oh, this will be good. You know, I go spotlighting around Adelaide, with, hold the torch near my temples, look for ice shine. Yes. There's a ringtail possum, there's a brushtail possum, there's a whatever. And I thought, I'll go to the Daintree and do that. And it's so thick and dense. And, and tree kangaroos are notoriously hard to spot. They, they hear you coming from a long way away. And often you'll hear a thump, jump, 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 because they will, they will come to the ground and, and hop away from you if they hear you coming. But, yeah, they move like the rock wallabies that you have here like in but you know kind of climbing and they're they're not as agile as a possum and they don't have the prehensile tail like a possum but still they do an amazing job up very high for a, for a macropod i would have assumed that they had a prehensile tail as well well they they don't it's quite interesting because mm. they evolved from possums and like betongs and potteries still have that prehensile tail but they have lost it because they are terrestrial and then they went back up into yeah. the trees like rock wallabies went up into the rocks and like the rock wallabies they use it like a rudder Yes, steering. for so balance. You'd, you'd imagine it'd be really handy, though, wouldn't you? Like, they'd sit there and have their tail wrapped around a branch like a monkey mm. would do. Yeah, no, not at all. But they will hang up over the other side of the branch and then lean forward to eat, and it will uh-huh. give them that counterweight. So they they are amazingly agile, but not yet. Don't move like a possum at all. Oh, they, they use it like a weight. Yes. That's interesting. So yes. If they're almost holding on, that's kind of, we'll call that semi-prehensile, Steve. There you go. That makes me happier. <laughs> <laughs> Evolution works that quickly. Just down to us. <laughs> the green ringtail possums, I saw a photo of a joey one today. They're, they're just a beautiful animal. They are. They're amazing. Yeah, so I spent um, a 1,000 hours, I did actually count during my PhD, spotlighting for for the green ringtail. So I was catching them and radio collaring them and then, and then following them around just so that I could see 
what individual animals were eating pretty much. So we did a little bit of home range work as well, but they were in these quite isolated pockets of, of um, fine forest up on the Atherton Tablelands in amongst a dairy farm actually and quite a big population surviving there. Uh, but yeah, so I spent a lot of time overnight following these possums around and they are just beautiful animals, really, really pretty. Are they are they quite rare, or are they only found in remnant bush? Like our ringtail possums here, you can live in your roof in the suburbs. Yeah, they no, they're not like that. They they're just in the rainforest. Yeah, so they do have the brush-tailed possums up in the rainforest too, but they're the northern subspecies, I think. Of brush-tailed possums. The brush-tailed possums. Okay. Yeah, so they they're a coppery colour and they look a bit like our brush tails, but a different subspecies. But the ring-tailed possums up there, you don't see around town. They're more shy, and and I yeah, I didn't ever see them in town. People probably have, but I didn't. I guess they're threatened because the habitat is threatened. You know, there's a lot of clearing, just like here in the Mount Lofty Ranges. Historically, there's been clearing for agriculture, and same as here. Yeah. So is that one of the main drivers for you to? It's why you love being a science communicator. Is it, is it maybe passion for conservation of some of these species or all of these species? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. I grew up on the um, Fluro Peninsula with bushland on our farm. So I think just growing up around plants and animals, you can't help, but it just gets under your skin. And yeah, I think as a child, when you spend a lot of time in the bush, you just inherently care for it and yeah I really do strongly believe that if people more people knew what it feels like to be in the Australian bush and and to kind of be immersed in that then maybe more people would care for it not that I'm saying people don't but that even more people could yeah so that's why I think I guess that's what leads through to the citizen science like I think people do care and they want to be involved and there's not always enough um, avenues or this is just a really great way to kind of engage with people or bring people into to science and research and conservation and you know all of that falls under that same umbrella. Yeah it's a very good point isn't it I mean I guess that's the first part of your job is to try to engage people to care which is almost impossible in a classroom I mean it's very possible when you say you've got them out in the water you know looking at a real animal the, the wind and the waves yeah. but then the next step is if you've got them to the point where they do care is well where do they channel that interest? Yes. Yes. Yeah. How to get involved, really. Yeah, exactly. That's where citizen science is amazing. I think that's just the best thing about it. Yeah. How easy it is for people to get involved. They only need to click on a computer. Everyone's on their computers all day. (laughs) Click on. And I reckon anyone could find something that they would be interested in when it comes to citizen science. In every country as well, we're finding out like it's all over the world as well. Yeah, yeah. there's thousands of camera traps in remote areas of the world that need Mm. someone to look for, you know, what's what's triggered them, Yeah, whether it's a moving branch or a a bondable snowman or whatever. (laughs) I'd love to find one of those. Yeah, that's exciting. (laughs) Again, yeah. They're out there. (laughs) (laughs) So the rainforest, beautiful place, and it's obviously a place you love and very passionate about. But now you're in Adelaide and now you're doing... Wild Orchid Watch. Wild Orchid Watch. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yes. So Wild Orchid Watch is a project based at the University of Adelaide. For the Wild Orchid Watch project, we're building an app at the university and we've got a big group, a team working on it that includes software engineers and ecologists and I'm the science communicator for the project. So it's a three-year project. We are working with the orchid enthusiasts, so the Native Orchid Society of South Australia, uh, Rosalie and Robert Lawrence. I love those guys. They're great. I've got their book. 
Yes, Roberts. Yeah, Roberts. Start with believes. Yeah. That's the one. That's the one. So this project really started with them, um, and they just had this big idea that Australia needed a central database where people could all come together and put their orchid photos and their location data and some habitat data, um, and it could be a central place that researchers could come and access that information because there are a lot of very passionate orchid enthusiasts out around Australia and they're already organised into their native orchid societies. But Robert and Rosalie had this idea that if we could have a more central uh, place to collect all this data and, and a really structured app, as it's turned out to be now with the with the amazing technology that we have, then that would be a, a perfect place for not just researchers but also land managers and potentially government departments to be able to, to keep an eye on what's going on with um, with the, the uh, 1,800 species that we have of native orchids in Australia. 1,800? Yes, so that's epiphytic and terrestrial here in South Australia, all terrestrial. How many um, have you got here, Adrian? Uh, it's, about, uh, it's about a dozen on the property. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I've got a long way to go. Not much. <laughs> <laughs> that's, pretty, that's pretty diverse by world standards, though. That's good. Yeah. So you've gone from looking up possums and tree kangaroos yes. in the Daintree and Atherton Tablelands and now you're looking down for orchids. That's right. Why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it's really great to be part of a national project and to kind of have this amazing team of really diverse skilled, diversely skilled people working on the same project. So we have the, the ecologists who advise on exactly what data would be great to collect and that's really important in a citizen science project that it's very um, guided the data that's being collected by the citizen scientists just so that it can be of maximum use to research science further down the track. Uh, So yeah, we're developing an app and it will just step people through a series of uh, questions and a series of photos. So we'll ask people to take a photo of the leaf and the whole plant and top down and the microhabitat, so looking at the leaf litter and then of the, the habitat that the orchid is growing in and then answer a few simple questions about the habitat and then they'll have their location services turned on on their phone. So, and then it will be uploaded and it will go to iNaturalist. So we're kind of creating a project within the iNaturalist platform. And then from there, other citizen scientists will be able to help ID every species as it, or every sighting as it comes up and is put through the app. And then all of the information will be stored in a secure place and will be able to be accessed by state data managers and researchers will be able to apply to have access to that to that specific data. So the herbaria are excited about it because then they can answer some of these tricky taxonomic questions that exist around orchids. I say 1,800 species in Australia, but it's quite a changeable number depending who you speak to. Even the researchers are not sure because they hybridise and there's just not enough information to know. And I should say that one of the reasons for the university coming on board and applying for this Australian Government grant was because orchids are an indicator of ecosystem change. It's kind of a much... It's not just about the orchids. It's it's looking at habitat and as things change, orchids are one of the first things to go because they do rely on the mycorrhizal fungi, which is quite specific to different species and the pollinators so once you know if you lose a pollinator or you lose the fungi then the orchids will go so we really need to do a great job of mapping every species and and knowing exactly where they are so that we can keep an eye on that and then also for, for potential development or you know managing the land 
it's much better if you're well informed about where things are for obvious reasons. And some of our terrestrial orchids are so small, aren't they? They're tiny, yeah, absolutely tiny. And that's why citizen science is so important to this project because orchid enthusiasts may be trained scientists who are retired or student scientists, but the large majority of orchid enthusiasts are just incredibly skilled and passionate people who are doing this as a hobby. And so for us to be able to kind of embrace and tap into their skills and have them contributing to a research project is it's just such an amazing thing. I think it's quite special that we can have this app that's freely downloadable and anyone can contribute data and we can not try and just collect it out of one research organisation or, you know, collect the data as a one small research group. We can have thousands potentially of people contributing their knowledge and their passion to the and project. And you need it too because not only are there lots of locations that, I mean even though I think in the Matlofty Ranges you've got around about 10% of the native veg left that, that might support orchids. I have heard that number, yes. And even though that's not much there's still a lot of land to cover yep. but orchids flower throughout the year. It's like a calendar of orchids. That's it's probably right. a bit of a peak during spring around now yeah yeah october september october yeah but there are some that still come out later and some that come out earlier so you need boots on the ground you do uh, all year round so that's good yep and specialized boots too like people who know their orchids and know the the sites and they've been going back there for 10 years 15 years checking that same site which is another really cool thing this project would do over time is is keep an eye on populations if they so some species only flower after fire or every three years an individual plant will flower um, and that'll be something that we can keep an eye on like numbers of flowers and phenology so yeah what which um, species are fruiting like actually being pollinated and setting seed um, which flowering in different years depending on weather you know there's so many questions that we can ask and then answer if we have this kind of large data set are there a lot of orchids that are in danger Yes, I wish I knew the stats on that, but it is scarily high. Mm. Um, The the sensitive, they call them sensitive species, so threatened species that range from vulnerable right through to to critically endangered. And there are breeding programs, some amazing um, ex-situ programs um, happening around Australia where people are growing orchids from seed and then translocating them back out into the wild. Um, yeah, because they are concerned that some are, are yeah, going extinct. They are the most stunning flower. Aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Even even when I go, like, even when you go into Bunnings and see the beautiful display of orchids there, I, I just find myself just staring at them going, wow, look at that. It's so strange. Like, yeah, that's what yeah. they're trying to do to pollinators. Great. Yeah, you'd yeah. be a good pollinator, Stephen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. The majority, yeah, the majority of the Bunnings ones are not Australian native. They're not, no. 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 Um, but the, <laughs> the Native Orchid Societies do, they do um, propagate, cultivate native orchids. And so it, it is a quite a, a large um, following in Australia is people growing Australian native orchids in the Australian ones, our, our native ones, always seem very small. The flowers seem very small yes, in comparison they are quite to delicate. Although the bunning ones. Yeah, which are the, <laughs> yeah. the epiphytic, like Singaporean mm. orchids, I think a lot of them are. Um, yeah, so we, and we do have some beautiful showy epiphytes that grow in the rainforest and some of them are quite easy to cultivate and you can buy them through the, mm. the native orchid societies. But those larger ones would be up in the rainforest rather than down there. We've got a big one here called the the hyacinth orchid. Yeah, that's a summer flowering orchid. Yeah, that's the last one to come up, and it's um, or first, depending on how you look at it. Um, I've got I've only ever seen one on the property. Oh, you've seen it here. Yeah, I don't see it every year. I mean, 
It's a big pink. I actually thought it was a weed when I first learned about it many years ago. And it's a, it's a local it down. one. I chopped it down. I poisoned it. When in doubt, rip it out. No, um, I didn't, Katie. No, <laughs> I've only learned about them recently. And, yeah, people go nuts for them. They grow down in Deep Creek as well. Someone sent one in to me, and like a photo in to me. Yeah, Not the actual. They're beautiful. There's so many that I yeah, only know. No, oh, right, yeah. It was the last one Not in Deep Creek. Citizen Science. So if you'd see one, pick it, send it to the herbarium. No. <laughs> Don't pick it. We filmed yesterday with Gardening Australia. Robert gave a great talk and a visual display of a legume and yep. a donkey orchid and showed how similar they look and the donkey orchids grow in amongst that native oh. legume. Um, and because the donkey orchids don't offer any reward to pollinators, they kind of trick the pollinators. So it's a mimicry. They, the orchid is tricking the pollinators into coming to visit them because they are that bit brighter and bigger uh, than the That's other plant that does offer a reward. And so the native bees come in and check the donkey orchids and move the pollen around. and, and Wow. So, yeah, Mimicking so, the bush pea. Yeah, they're great at mimicry and often, it's not always the case, but often orchids don't offer a reward, but they do these really clever, tricky things like also um, mimicking the scent of a female wasp. So the male wasp will come in and, and check that orchid and move the pollen around in that way. Yeah. Wow. So it's, yeah, it's, they're amazing. Oh. Super cool. And this is why there are so many orchid enthusiasts too, because they're, they're mysterious and beautiful and people just get hooked. A bit like birding. I think it's a similar sort of... I was, I was going to ask that because you're getting into orchids now and you're doing all these studies. Does that mean that you've got a list now of wanting to see every orchid in Australia or... Like I do with pythons, but that sounds yeah, yeah. a lot easier. Even though I think that's really difficult, it sounds a lot easier. Than, I do. I do get excited when I see a new species, and because we have social media to kind of engage people and promote the project, I see these amazing photos. People send in these incredible photos from around Australia, and so then when I actually do get to see one of those in the wild, it gets super exciting. And I haven't gotten to do that in any other states yet, but we're travelling to Tasmania in November, and we'll go over to WA early next year or once the app is ready. And, um, yeah, that's going to be, be amazing because cool. they have this, there's a Queen of Sheba flower over there. You guys will have to look it up and have a look at it. But it's, it's purple and spotty, but it's also got orange and yellow oh. and just the most incredible flowers. Um, yeah, so I, I guess I do have that checklist. How many kinds of orchids do we have here? In the Mount Lofty Ranges? In South oh, Australia? Is it around 400? Is it? I would have to check that up. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Awesome. I've got three species of green hoods on the property. And they look like the head from the movie Alien. Oh, aren't They're they amazing? Such cool looking guys. Yes. But you've got to get down and close to look at them. But I think what helps is if you've got a book with photographs or illustrations, because then you can get familiar with the orchid before you see it. So yep. you get a bit of an idea of what yes. you're looking at. Yeah, so it definitely helps. And yeah, actually, it's Instagram. Um, is a really amazing tool for these kind of groups because people can share share their photos and, and this is what we hope and people do it through iNaturalist already and we hope this is something that builds around this project once the app is released um, is the sharing of photos and the excitement people have yeah and just because they've got such weird and wonderful forms it's uh, really exciting and people are so artistic with their f photography as well um, that's just a cool aside from the science but you know we need to capture everything that we can so it's a great hobby and it adds to your bushwalking and your camping and 
all of those things. And, yep. and, and you end up learning, well, there's, if there's a good range of orchids, you're standing in somewhere pretty diverse and pretty yeah. special. That's right, exactly. And relatively pristine. So yeah, there probably hasn't been disturbance of the topsoil because you really do need that mycorrhizal fungi to, to still be there. Um, so, yeah, it is, it's, yeah. And what's really handy is they, they don't mind a little bit of disturbance in that they like the sunlight, they like a bit of an opening to grow. So you often see them along the paths. That's right, yeah. And that's, yeah, that's a really important part of this project too is um, it's, they're accessible, they're often along the edges of a walking track, partly, yeah, because they don't mind a little bit of disturbance and also the, the light gap, I suppose, that, that occurs along a, a track, or so a fire track or... A, a bush walking track so you don't actually need to leave the path at all to see um, to see pretty much all of them yeah. yeah a good friend Dr John Wamsley lives around the corner has been on the show he's got a um, a few acres and he has over 30 species of orchid might, wow. be, over, might be over 40 now on his property it was an English garden yeah. uh, when he bought the place right um but he didn't plant them, did he? I think they've just come back, haven't they? Well, I don't know if I'm allowed to say. But anyway. Oh. <laughs> but but what, what he talks about is native woody weeds. So, yeah, he's removed all the broom and the, the gorse and blackberry and, you know, introduced shrubs and things. And then, of course, you get, you know, your um, your tea trees and your bottle brush and your, you know, your bush peas and your native shrubs. Yep. And he calls them native woody weeds. Now, he's not saying they're, they're weeds, let's get rid of them. Yep. He's saying let's have them confined to over there. Because um, once upon a time there would be events that would wipe them out, like natural fires mm-hmm. or fire stick farming or grazing or the young being dug up by potteries and betongs or whatever. Yep. So he um, keeps it quite open. He'll yep. set up the tall trees, but then just have like that sort of, um, you know, where most of your threatened species are, but, you know, sort of up to shin high. Yes. Um, and that's where your biodiversity is. Whereas if he was to leave that, like a lot of... Um, areas of bush that are heritage listed they won't let you go in there and do this and clear that and remove a native plant mm. they don't have the biodiversity you know the orchids aren't there yeah except along the trail mm. or after yeah. fire yeah because it's almost been cleared for them to, to come up yeah that's mm. right it's where yeah. your diversity is and I think after the fire stick farming the indigenous people would then come and be able to dig up those orchids which sounds crazy to imagine orchids on such high number that yeah. you'd be able to just dig them up and eat them and, and they could also you know, feed potteroos and betongs and bandicoots and things. Um, and now there's like, you, you see seven of them. There was, I don't know if you're familiar with this one, Katie, but I don't, I don't remember what it was, but there's a rare fern um, called the coral fern. Yeah. And it only grows on slopey, sandy soil that's wet all year round. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's not much of it around in the late hills. And it's quite rare. And Rob Morrison, who was on the show, had it on his property. And that's him, right. Yeah. yeah. Where his boar is. Yes, where his boar mm-hmm. That's right. There was some in Clearland this, of this coral fern, and there was an orchid that was even rarer growing in that exact same condition. And there may have only been like two or three of these orchids. So wow. they actually cleared some of this really, really rare fern oh. to facilitate this even more rare orchid. <laughs> I haven't heard that story. <laughs> this is what we've come to, folks. This yeah. is what we've come to. Um, Where to now? Really, our project was to build momentum around um, the project and to build the app. So. We're still beta testing that. We have a, a field trip on mon- uh, sorry on Saturday with 26 people who have booked in to come and be beta testers. So Rosalind Robert and some other orchid enthusiasts. We have a PhD student too, Sam. We'll go- do guided walks around Morialta with people with the apps on their phone and we are aiming to break it. So the idea is that we um, find all the bugs within the app while we're still developing it um, and, and have input from people who love to to do the orchid spotting and um 
and then we'll release it early next year so that people can download it and then by mid next year we'll be handing the project back to the orchid societies and citizen scientists to manage it so it will be it'll sit on iNaturalist so it pretty much will look after itself in that way but it won't be managed by the university anymore at that point so that will be I guess kind of where I pass it back over to Rosalie and Robert and their group of orchid enthusiasts or a national group of some kind. So with the app you're making is that is that like anyone can get that app they take a picture of what they think is an orchid that will go somewhere and they'll they'll say whether that is or isn't. That's right yeah so there'll be an online community of people who will verify the ID so that already happens with iNaturalist. Mm. Um, We will just be a very specific app asking specific questions um, and Hopefully, the majority of people who are collecting uh, native orchid observations via the iNaturalist style or via an app will be doing it via Wild Orchid, Wild orchid Watch. And um, so we can have all that data in one place. So a big shout-out to the people that collect those stupid toys that shopping centres bring out <laughs> across the counter and you get excited when there's a rare one that might be the Wheat Bix box or something. Get into orchids because it's the same thing, but it's actually not shit. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> great though if, if Woolworths gave away an app like that so that you could actually do some, Did some citizen yeah. science like that yeah, and yeah. use that instead and there of is gamification in apps now so like the Pokemon Go we talk about Pokemon mm. Go as kind of it's almost on the same line as Ushies like what really why it makes more sense to go out and look for something real so yeah here's yeah. a challenge for you mm. via the app you have there a challenge is- to go and find a, a Glossodia Major a purple cockatoo orchid and so and go and take that photo and send it in to us and then, you know, a thousand people do that and you can map a section of that orchid's uh, distribution. Um, it just, it, to me, that makes more sense than chasing something that's... But I know a lot of people love Pokemon Go and I think it, it is that same feeling in people that can be really exciting ab- about orchid hunting or bird spotting. It's just that feeling of the hunt and then you find it and... And you're building and an you appreciation share. and a knowledge. Yes, yeah. yes. And you can share with other enthusiasts and, you know, take the beautiful photos. And that would be great if that was the next fad. I think that's what's happening. I'm doing a talk on Friday night for a development here at Mount Barker and they've got all the new homeowners coming and I'm talking about what they might see in the area wildlife and nature wise but there's yeah. someone coming to talk about something you just described on an app that's um to like a pokemon go app i, I don't know what it's called uh, i'm gonna f- oh, i wish I'd, I'd already done that so i could talk about it now yeah. but yeah yeah. Be, yeah that would be amazing it's a good idea Love to see a yeah, lot more that, of that sort of stuff there are yeah. there are quite a few out there i mean there are a lot of citizen science apps obviously but yeah there are some of the more general ones like the iNaturalist where you can upload any plant or animal any living thing that you find and people will comment on there and and give you an identification on it and then that data is also stored so that we can build a picture of what is where someone in the natural me, world it's a great app someone showed me the frog section and you've got all the frog calls on there yes that's bloody good yeah mm. like there the, are a few frog froglets in the background so you sorry there are a few yeah frog apps um we have a local one in south australia frog watch sa the frog spotter app yeah and then there's the national one the frog id app which recently won a eureka citizen science prize so they are a kind of a sister project to the Wild Orchid Watch project. They're on this same citizen science Australian government group of yeah, science engagement projects that are national. And we also had one running for the last two years out of natural resources in Mount Barker, um, the Mega Murray-Darling Microbat project. So that was a, another citizen science project where we were inviting the community to cord bat calls and then submit the data and then be able to map the microbats across the Murray-Darling Basin. 
Do you lend them equipment to record back calls? That's right, yeah. So um, Sylvia Clark was managing that. I did work on that project with her for a while. And yes, so she had the Anabat recorders and people would sign up and then borrow the recorder just for a night or two and put it in their bush block or just their backyard. And that was in the Murray-Darling Basin region of South Australia. Yeah, and I think there's 15 species of microbats that we have just in that area. And from their calls, you can work out what species it is based on the the sonogram so we have some great specialists at the museum who worked on that project with her and and id the the species through that so that was another really cool citizen science project and there are just so many there's the echidna csi one which is a national project run out of adelaide university talia perry works on that and that's gone amazingly well so they get a lot of echidna sightings submitted to them through their app which was built at the university too so yeah we're doing really well in south australia in terms of citizen science and and these apps which make it so easy for anyone to get involved so get on your phones brilliant it's a funny message isn't it get outside and get on your phone (laughs) but it's just really such an easy way to send in data compared to you know data sheets or people who historically have stored all of their information about orchids for example in their notebooks and then you often will lose that data when somebody moves on in one way or another you'd lose that data whereas if people are submitting it instantly while they're out in the field or recording it through the app then we have that um, useful for scientists which I think is super important. It's really good isn't it? I mean you used to have to go to a library and look up a book and sit down with that book and hope it was in that book and now you can just stick it on Facebook and on one of these great nature pages and you know they'll turn someone will turn around and tell you what it is. Yes. Can't be a good book though. No, good field guide. No, absolutely, I agree with that. Yeah, like yeah, and they can work in conjunction, really, they, can't exactly. they? You have that online community of people for your instant chats, but then also, yeah, the field guides. And everyone still takes the field guides out with mm. them too, alongside their mobile phone. Yeah. yeah, love a good field guide. Katie, I'm going to take you and show you a leopard orchid. Okay. We've got leopard orchids in the property. I don't think you've seen a leopard orchid. No, yeah. I haven't seen one in a while. That would mm. be amazing. They're wild leopards here, Do Steve. I have to come as well, then? <laughs> yes, yes, now, because you said it like that. <laughs> and you have to enjoy it. You just made me talk about plants for 20, 30 minutes, yeah. and now I've got to go and look at them. Steve loves plants. I'm only kidding. Without plants, Steve, there's no, no pythons. No, they'd get through Is it. Is that right? No, they'd they get through it. Pythons. Yeah. <laughs> they get through it. They're snake food food. Think of it like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Katie, thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. It's been fun. Yeah, it's awesome. Awesome. Thank you very much, yeah. Yeah, I can see why you love doing it and you're great at doing it. Katie Irvine, science communicator. Guys, thank you for listening.